uh, when I started 10 years ago in medical office, you know, it was, in my opinion, it was just kind of really turning into a very hot asset back then. And since then, it's become, you know, way hotter. Uh, we've seen cap rate compression of, of 200 basis points, you know, since I started on most medical office. The demand for healthcare real estate is 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 exceptional. Um, if anything, I would say, you know, before before and after COVID, I would say it's actually stronger after COVID, um, just because you know that really shined a light on you know how important you know our healthcare infrastructure is uh, to the country. I think you know people were just like. All right, you know we really, you know this is really important, and this is a really safe asset. And, you know, I think I think it's a great uh, product for uh, for people to get into. Hi everyone, I'm Keith Loranger, and this is the Real Market Talks podcast. This podcast began with the idea that having discussions with a variety of experts in the real estate and building industry could offer unique insights during these strange and unpredictable times. By cutting a cross-section through a variety of disciplines, my goal is to find professionals that are excited to share the tools they're using to find success and talk about the teams that they're building to execute on their goals. This is the first episode of the Commercial Podcast, and I'm thrilled to introduce Chris Mitchell, who works for Marcus & Millichamp as first Vice President of Investments. He's also a director of the Healthcare Real Estate Group, as well as a director of the National Office and Industrial Properties Group. Chris has a broad range of sales experience working with a variety of different product types, but really goes into a lot of great depth on healthcare, which he has special expertise in. He also shares a lot about his background with sale leasebacks, and if this is a transaction that you have experience in or are looking for additional guidance on, I would definitely recommend hearing what Chris has to say, or reaching out to him as he is a tremendous resource. The Real Market Talks podcast can currently be found on Spotify, and if you enjoy the content, you can like and leave a comment there. You can also write into the show email, realmarkettalks at gmail.com, with any thoughts, suggestions, or guest opportunities that you or someone you know might be interested in. Without any further ado, let's hear from Chris. Chris, it's great to have you on the show. I've been really looking forward to, to having you on, and we've been talking about this for a little while now. So what I usually like to do is just start out with kind of your elevator pitch. If you want to introduce yourself and what you do in real estate and a little bit about your markets, uh, that would be a great way to get going. Awesome. Uh, Keith, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking forward to doing this for a week or so now. Uh, my name is Chris Mitchell. I work for Marcus and Millichap. We're the largest investment real estate firm in the United States. Uh, I am first vice president of investments and director of, or a director of the healthcare real estate group, as well as a director of the national office and industrial properties group. We are a publicly traded company. Last year, we did about $84 billion in sales and 13,000 transactions. We have 2,000 agents or about 2,000 agents in 80 offices across the U.S. and a couple offices in Canada. Uh, I've really enjoyed working with Marcus Millichap. It's a great place to work and has been a great place to learn the business. So I've been really looking forward to talking with you because you work in a lot of different markets. And I think this is a really interesting time 
to be getting insights into some of the things that we're seeing happening uh, across the country. Do you want to go into a little bit of detail about the markets that you work in and, and what you do in those areas? Yeah, sure. I work, uh, my main market is healthcare real estate. About 60% of the projects I've worked on in my career are single tenant net lease healthcare deals, uh, primarily local healthcare systems in a single tenant building, plasma centers, dialysis centers, we do some dental buildings, we're working on a rehab project. Um, you know, anything single tenant net lease related to healthcare. Uh, about 30% of our business is multi tenant medical office buildings. Uh, we call them MOBs uh, for short. Um, a lot of different specialties. We've, we've worked on most of the different uh, specialties within healthcare, family practice, orthopedics, uh, neurology, dermatology, etc. And about 10% of our business um, occasionally we'll do an office deal or an industrial deal or a single tenant net lease deal for a client. Uh, ideally, what we're looking for uh, with the deals we're working on are deals that have decent credit or investment grade credit attached to the lease. Uh, so as everybody knows, many investors uh, really want to see deals where they know the tenant is not going to bail on their lease before the term is over and there's some sort of uh, entity tying uh, that lease to you know, a larger entity. Uh, strong credit, uh, single tenant net leased healthcare and MOBs in general trade at pretty aggressive cap rates uh, because they're viewed as a generally safe investment, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, the last thing we work on within that kind of healthcare single tenant office industrial market is we'll do what's called a sale leaseback for tenants that don't necessarily have that strong credit or strong financials. Uh, we usually do a sale leaseback for a medical practice. Um, you know, typically more than three doctors, up to you know ten to twenty doctors. Uh, essentially, the doctors will sign a long-term triple net lease and then ultimately sell the building. Uh, this can be a pretty effective strategy for a seller uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, the first thing it does for the seller is it theoretically maximizes the value of the building. Um, Unless the building's in an incredible market and the real estate's just phenomenal, uh, the building is likely not to be worth more than it, what it would be tied to a long-term lease uh, with a guarantee on the lease. The second thing a sale leaseback does is it allows a group to plan an exit strategy for the business into the future. So a lot of times, a group of doctors, uh, you know, they're typically in their 50s. They're, you know, they're trying to figure out what they want to do 10, 15 years from now. Uh, it kind of gives them, you know. A timeline in terms of if they want to, you know, retire and sell the business, retire or sell the business, um, hire new people, or or just you know shut down the business and then they don't have to worry about the real estate anymore. Uh, the third thing uh, is they can write off the rent in a sale leaseback, which is a huge advantage. Um, so not only are they taking the cash from the sale, but they're writing off the rent. And then to kind of hit on that a little bit more. Um, a lot of times in healthcare, you know, these smaller private practices are getting bought out by larger health systems. So sometimes when a larger private practice does a sale leaseback, this is kind of a best case scenario. But if they are bought out by a larger health system, typically that health system will take responsibility over that lease. So in that that situation is great for someone in a sale leaseback because, as I said, they take the cash from the sale and then 
you know, they can transfer over that responsibility to the lease to the larger organization uh, that's buying them out. And then they can reinvest the capital into the business, uh, potentially add on to the building. Um, you know, that grows their business. If they want to add on to the building, that's great for the, the buyer as well, because, you know, that's going to increase the NOI on their investment. Um, and then lastly, for a sale leaseback, I know we've touched on this quite a bit here, um, is the, the market for sale leasebacks is really good. Um, there's a big market for it. Uh, investors like them. The, a lot of times an investor can get into a nice medical office property, a low price per square foot or a low basis, and it would cost to build a newer newer medical office building. So they view it as a, you know, a very low basis, safe investment. Kind of the, the rub on doing a sale leaseback is, um, you know, it doesn't have that strong credit. So the doctors typically need to sign on the dotted line to guarantee uh, the payment. You know, they call this a personal guarantee. You know, as I mentioned, a lot of these doctors are older and you know, we're dealing with issues with the doctor's health and things of that nature. And they're, a lot of times doctors are reluctant to, you know, make that commitment on a sale leaseback. But, you know, doing single tenant net lease health care, medical office buildings, some office deals, some industrial deals, you know, along with, you know, the sale leaseback strategy is, is my primary uh, strategy in marketing. That's great. Uh, that's a great overview of um, the sale leaseback. Maybe this is a coincidence. Maybe it's not. I don't have a, a ton of experience doing uh, or being involved with a sale leaseback. However, in coming to understand them and learn about them in case studies that I've reviewed, they have seemed to be more often than not associated with a medical or medical office uh, scenario more than any other product type that you know I'm familiar with sale leasebacks is do they just have a higher you know frequency in the medical office sort of arena for for the particular reasons you've outlined or is this you know something that you see across other classes as well uh, we see them across other classes as well industrial you know you'll see sale leasebacks you know a lot of uh, those big industrial clients aren't tied to uh, you know huge large organizations industrial medical uh, not really in retail um, you know, I would say those are the three primary or the two primary markets, industrial and healthcare, are where we see them the most. There's some office too, um, but uh, yeah. Interesting. So in the types of clients that you're typically working with, as you mentioned, in these types of deals and transactions are a lot of times groups of doctors or groups of individuals that are sort of coming together to do this deal uh, that will be occupying the building, but maybe within separate offices that will be working out of them? Yeah. So, I mean, most of the time when we're doing the sale leaseback, it is uh, a group of doctors. And typically the buyer for a sale leaseback is, is more often than not a healthcare fund mm -hmm. um, or, you know, there's some other REITs and things like that, that buy most of the time it's a healthcare fund that, you know, is, is kind of eat, sleeping and breathing healthcare real estate. The individuals on the other side of that are kind of a group of maybe disparate practitioners that have, you know, been working out of that building for some time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, there'll be one or two doctors, you know, in a private practice that, you know, they decide they want to try to put together a sale leaseback. And a lot of times, I mean, sometimes you can put it together and make it work, but it, it's very difficult to do. Um, you know, with one or two doctors, because like mm -hmm. I mentioned, you know, there's not other doctors kind of there to back things up if something goes wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the good sale leasebacks and the, the good deals we put together are typically, you know, a group of, you know, six, eight, 10, 20 docs um, mm-hmm. that kind of have a thriving business. Great. So this is a particularly interesting time. We're coming out of a um, eventful uh, period uh, with COVID and the shutdowns and markets have transformed dramatically. Uh, so could you kind of just talk a little bit about what the market looked like pre-COVID? Maybe talk about some of the trends and things that you saw happening during that period and now what it's starting to look like on the other side? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, COVID, the, the market was, was fantastic before COVID, right? Because the interest rates were low. And then the interest rate didn't really pop until after COVID. So the market was great before. And, you know, even during our company did great during COVID. Um, some of the other brokers I work with and, you know, brokers across the country had great years, you know, doing, doing investment sales across all product types. You know, after COVID, um, again, it did, you know, the, the market didn't really slow down um, from an investment sales standpoint till, till, um, till last summer when the interest rate popped. But, you know, obviously there were some headwinds in the office market with COVID, um, you know, with people being out of the office and working from home and things like that. And I think, um, you know, the aftermath of that um, is really starting to, to show uh, in that office market. Um, but, you know, mainly where that, where that is the case with COVID is, um, you know, the older office product, you know, older buildings, um, the people, you know, I think people that work in an office environment want to work somewhere, you know, cooler and hipper and nicer and, you know, you know, in a nice area. So, you know, kind of those, that, that older office product that's not well located is really, you know, what, what's probably gotten hitting, hitting the hardest. And you're, you're seeing that because you're obviously working with assets that are in, is it a, a range from sort of more rural and suburban all the way up to uh, more denser urban properties? Or is there sort of a, a specific market that you're, you're seeing particular types of activity or slowdowns? Uh, well, in my market, we work, um, you know, we work all over the country. Um, you know, every once in a while we'll do, you know, a, you know, a big market. I'm working on a deal just off the strip in Las Vegas right now. Um, you know, and I'm working on a deal. That's why I was talking to you about Vermont earlier. We're doing a very, you know, kind of small town Vermont deal. Uh, so we're, we're doing stuff all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we adjust our cap rates and our pricing accordingly uh, from where we're at, obviously different, pl- different parts of the country, you know, pricing is going to be different and, and the quality of the real estate is going to be different. Um, but in terms of, you know, the healthcare world, um, you know, I think we've, when the interest rate um, popped last summer, uh, we've seen about across the country, nationally, across single tenant and multi-tenant medical, uh, we've seen about a 60 basis point hike uh, in cap rates on average, which relatively speaking is not that much. Some of the you know, lower quality medical office or the, or the, or the older medical office properties. Um, it's definitely, you know, close to a hundred basis points or, or slightly higher than that. Is there a little bit less concern 
on the medical office side about from a sort of a economic resilience standpoint, just because I would imagine that medical office, when you're talking about that use, is a little bit different than general office where there's been a lot of a transition to mobile hybrid type work, remote type work versus with medical office, there's still perhaps a need that people need to get in there and see physicians and um, it's, you know, maybe functioning a little bit different from that standpoint. Yeah. So the, uh, when I started 10 years ago in medical office, you know, it was, in my opinion, it was just kind of really turning into a very hot asset back then. And since then it's become, you know, way hotter. Uh, we've seen cap rate compression of, of 200 basis points, you know, since I started on most medical office. Um, yeah, the, the demand for healthcare real estate is 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 exceptional. Um, if anything, I would say, you know, before before and after COVID, I would say it's actually stronger after COVID. Um, just because, you know, that really shined a light on, you know, how important um, you know, our healthcare infrastructure is uh, to the country. I think, you know, people were just like, all right, you know, we really, you know, this is really important and this is a really safe asset and you know i think i think it's a great uh, product for uh, for people to get into yeah it definitely sounds like it so just to kind of wrap up the discussion on talking about kind of some specific markets and you kind of talked a little bit about this with you know vegas and vermont do you want to maybe highlight some markets in particular where you're seeing increases in activity uh, and maybe others where it's, you know, slowing down a little bit? Um, I mean, you know, sometimes we'll work on, you know, urgent care deals. I mean, a lot of times the urgent care deals are in, you know, heavily trafficked retail areas. Um, I think those are always, you know, that's always a safe bet, um, in my opinion, uh, for, for owning the real estate. Um, but in terms of like specific, you know, markets, I mean, obviously, you know, I was going to talk about this a little bit too, was, you know, California, that market trades quite a bit different than the rest of the country. We've actually never sold a deal in California. Uh, cap rates there are way lower and tax situations different. And um, it's just kind of a different real estate world. But in terms of, you know, we, we, we do deals in, in small towns and we've done deals in big towns. And, you know, typically, you know, our prices uh, we adjust accordingly, you know, based on where it's at. I mean, we're we're working on a deal right now in Lima, Ohio. Um, you know, that's uh, you know in the middle of a cornfield, but it's oh, wow. uh, it's a it's a deal that's got that's got investment grade credit to it, um, and someone will, will probably you know be interested in that deal. But yeah, I mean, we price it accordingly. We're not going to price the deal in Lima, Ohio, the same we would price Las Vegas. That's great. Obviously, it's a it's a hot market right now, and a lot of asset classes. There's also a lot of um, uncertainty, which we've talked about, and everybody is is observing. Are there any you know particular strategies or um, tools that you guys are deploying to you know find new projects, keep deals moving, to, to find success under these conditions? Yeah, the one thing we've done a lot lately. A couple projects we're working on is uh, seller financing. You know, obviously the rates are higher. Um, typically, this strategy is great for shorter-term uh, deals. You know, deals that have three or four years on them because 
if it's under five years, it's it's a little it's tougher to get you know a bank loan. But a, a seller financing is a really I, I think it's really cool. You know, it can be beneficial for both the buyer and the seller. Uh, the buyer will t- typically negotiate a lower interest rate than they could with the lender. Uh, so for the seller, um, this makes a lot of sense because they can typically get a higher price, lock in a decent down payment and kind of double dip on that interest rate payment through the term. And then if the deal goes south or the tenant leaves, you know, the seller would get the building back. And, um, you know, a lot of times that's a lot of times the buyer wants that because if the buyer puts down a 30 percent down payment on seller financing and the tenant leaves, um, you know, he has the option to give the building back because he doesn't want to deal with, you know, putting in, putting the tenant improvement in to put in another tenant and just doesn't want to deal with the, the building. You know, over the course of that three or four years, the buyer has, you know, basically broke even. Uh, and then from the seller standpoint, the seller might say, well, I'll take the building back. You know, I'll, I'll take the down payment money and uh, use that as the TI money um, to, you know, get another tenant in there. And then, you know, potentially, you know, turn around and sell the building for, you know, what I just sold it three years ago for or slightly more, maybe. So, um, you know, that can benefit the buyer and the seller. I, I think it's a pretty interesting strategy. Yeah, definitely. And is that something that you see happening more frequently now? Or you might have kind of implied that than before? Or is that something that um, has stayed consistent in terms of transactions and deals you've been seeing happening? People will always do it, but, um, you know, that's a, that's a strategy that's really, you know, more people have been using the last you know year or so uh, since the rates have been, have been moving upwards. So is there anything that you've found that's been surprising or had you made any personal you know, predictions or forecasts and are seeing anything happening now that it's sort of not uh, aligning with what your expectation was deal-wise? I would say, you know, the most interesting thing for me and my my uh, my group here is, you know, for some of these smaller healthcare groups um, are getting bought out by, you know, larger private equity firms, uh, which I think is creating opportunity for people, uh, particularly for the seller. Uh, the seller, you know, is in, you know, they're in a lease or they're in a building and then they get their business gets bought out by a larger private equity firm, which enhances the credit on their lease. And a lot of times the seller doesn't really understand that, you know, this is really helping me. Uh, this is really increasing the value of my real estate because uh, now there's, you know, more credit on my lease. Um, you know, they're typically, you know, putting, you know, decent terms on the lease and, you know, we can compress the cap rate and um, it's kind of creating you know, another little niche market, if you will. Was there anything else in particular that you thought was worth noting about just the conditions that are happening right now or anything that you're seeing expressed from clients uh, either on the buying or selling side that you think is worth highlighting or, or mentioning right now? Yeah, I mean, we we see a lot of, um, you know, we hear a lot of concerns from clients. You know, sometimes it's, you know, relevant as to what's going on and, and sometimes it's it's not. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people talk about, you know, the politics and things like that, but you know, in terms of, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of real estate, um, we hear a lot right now about difficulty modeling out deals. Um, so we recently proposed on a 27-year uh, health system credit deal, and um, it had assumable debt on the property. And 
And um, that assumable debt uh, was after seven years, um, you know, the rate was subject to change. Um, so it's very difficult to, you know, model out your risk on a 27-year lease um, and assume the debt when you know the rate's going to change seven years from now. I mean, especially when you're, you know, a 27-year lease deal, I mean, you're basically pricing that as aggressive as you possibly can. It'll be the most aggressively priced medical office building, you know, on the market. Um, so, you know, trying to get, um, you know, buyers really comfortable with, you know, how to model that out and, and let them kind of see what their return is going to be over, over time is, um, you know, that, that can be difficult. And, and all brokers across all product types are dealing with that to some degree. Short-term leases, which I mentioned earlier, we see a ton of those in our market. Um, you know, what happens if the tenant leaves? You know, if the rent is, you know, we're working on something right now where the rent is $22 a foot um, and the market rent is $18 a foot. So if the tenant leaves, um, you know, and the buyer has to re-tenant the lease and the market's only 18, well, they're buying the deal for a 12 cap, but you know, synthetically, if the tenant leaves, you know, the deal is a seven and a half or an eight cap. Uh, so we deal with a lot of short-term leases. Um, you know, like I said, you know, replacement of, of lower rent. Uh, single asset guarantors are, are another thing for us. Um, you know, I always talk, I keep talking about the credit on a lease and particularly for a single tenant deal. Um, you know, Investors want to see, you know, the, the big entity on a lease, you know, particularly for a health system or, you know, a plasma center or a dialysis center or something like that. Uh, but sometimes there'll be a single asset guarantor. We'll call it a shell, a shell guarantee. And, um, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, that the single asset guarantor, you have to look at the unit level financials versus the big entity financials. Uh, so we have to price that, you know, quite a bit differently. Um, you know, when we take it to market and the buyer pool decreases dramatically uh, when we don't have that big entity guarantee. Um, and I guess the last thing is just, you know, dealing with a lot of different types of leases. Um, you know, is, is, the, is the asset absolute triple net? So, um, you know, is the tenant responsible for everything, no matter what, including the roof and the structure of the property? Is the asset triple net and then the landlord is responsible for the roof and structure or double net and you know there's hvac responsibilities and parking lot responsibilities and things of that nature uh, that typically uh, is an issue for us um, you know in the proposal process the marketing process and you know sometimes we'll have to credit um, you know a buyer um, you know at closing or something if there's an issue with you know a parking lot or an hvac or something like that yeah, the, the rates point in particular, I think, has been one of the biggest curveballs that I've observed and has been, you know, talked about lately in particular. It seemed like there were such safe harbors for so long when some of these initial deals were being modeled and, you know, people were forecasting out, as you mentioned, 27, you know, however many years. And uh, there seemed to be some sort of consistency that they were expecting and anticipating. And then uh, to see these circumstances change um, so dramatically uh, has definitely thrown everybody for a loop. I mean, are, when you see people talking about deals now, are they 
are, are they more hesitant to discuss something that's more variable? Are they changing the way that they want to model things in the future just because this has been such a shock to the system now? Or are people still saying, you know, are, can we model out with some sort of certainty that these kind of financial tools will work for the purposes as we're, as we're forecasting? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, particularly for the single tenant net lease, the smaller deals, um, you know, if they're, if they're nice deals, if they're longer term, strong credit, they're getting priced um, not much different than they would be getting priced, you know, a year or two years ago. So, you know, the brokers are bringing out deals, kind of hoping for a cash buyer. Um, you know, there are, I think there are a lot of cash deals getting done. I don't think there's as many cash buyers as, as what people are saying. Um, but, you know, that's one strategy is, you know, Brokers are marketing the deal to try to get a cash buyer, particularly for mm-hmm. longer term leases, particularly for sh- uh, smaller price points. So avoid um, any risky financing altogether. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the assuming the debt is, um, assume, you know, depending on the price point of the deal, assuming the debt, you know, makes a lot of sense in this environment because obviously we can assume the debt. You know, when the term burns off, you can kind of, you know, place a bet that, you know, rates are going to be lower or, you know, rates aren't going to be too much different. Um, but, um, you know, putting putting new debt on stuff right now is, uh, you know, I think I think if it's the right deal, it's the right move. Um, but, uh, you know, I think most people that are doing that are kind of, you know, placing a bet that, you know, they can they can redo that loan you know, down the road. All right. That's great. Uh, those are awesome market insights. For the second part of the show, I wanted to give you the opportunity for us to learn a little bit more about you and just you know your story in real estate. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate? What drew you to it? Yeah. So this is my second career. Uh, I started commercial real estate when I was 32 years old. Um, I originally uh, worked in Chicago on the trading floors. Um, I, I traded futures and options and things like that. You know, that market, that that business essentially just kind of blew out because of, you know, algorithms and, and, and computer trading and things like that. And it ultimately became, you know, very difficult to make money, um, you know, day in and day out trading. So, uh, you know, the vast majority of people, you know, that I worked with during that time have kind of moved on to another career. And, um, you know, after you know, thinking about it a lot and doing some soul searching, I decided I wanted to go into sales. A friend of a friend was working at Marcus and Melichap. I did an interview. I had the option to do selling apartments in Chicago or uh, doing office and industrial deals in Chicago or doing healthcare, which was a national platform. I kind of knew I was heading back to Ohio at some point because that's where I'm from. Uh, my wife's from Cleveland. I was getting married around that time. Uh, so I started, um, you know, I built the database around Ohio, uh, started calling into Ohio, and then a couple years later moved back to Ohio, and it's a pretty smooth transition, and then, you know, started, you know, uh, branching out more into a national market. Great. Yeah, I actually read Michael Lewis's book, I think it was called Flash Boys, on, uh, yeah. the, on the, the electronic trading, and that totally blew my mind. It's, yeah. I mean, when you talk about a transformation, uh, unbelievable. I, and I couldn't believe some of the infrastructure that they were building, uh, huge industrial projects to support some of that. 
um, and just what a huge change and impact it's had to those markets. Yeah, that was a that was a fantastic book. Yeah, the, most of us were very uh, discouraged by by how that all played out because it really uh, it really shook the markets up and changed the way that uh, that people conduct that business. And even now, I think a lot more people are probably familiar with it. Um, but for lay people who you know are you know retail traders or whatnot you know, to really get into the details uh, about what's, how that all works um, and what kind of forces are, are at play there is it's, it's, it really takes a lot to wrap your head around. I think with uh, the financial markets, I think if you just kind of follow the, you know, the trusty Warren Buffett system of long-term holds, buy dividends, that's, you know, that's a way less stressful way to do it than trying to be in and out of the markets all day. Yeah. So uh, interesting to hear how you got into real estate. What are some areas of you know expertise that you would say sets your business and your office apart from others? My partner and I combined, we've been doing this for 12 years. Uh, we have a pretty good understanding of the market and the nuances of the healthcare market. Uh, large database of, of buyer types and client types. The M&M platform is phenomenal. I think uh, I think our company does as good of a job as any of um, you know, you know, kind of casting that really large net into the marketplace. You know, we, we work together a lot. I would say, you know, about 40% of the deals we do, we co-broke, you know, so that's ultimately, you know, you know, helping the seller out a lot. Uh, we provide a lot of feedback and research to our clients, um, you know, from the time we propose on the deal to the time uh, we sell the deal through the marketing process. Um, Many times in the middle of a lease negotiation, we're able to guide them through, um, you know, the process and help them structure their lease and that lease negotiation process and, and structure that lease in the most beneficial way to set them up for a successful sale. Uh, because as we keep talking about, like, you know, some of the you know nuances of a lease are very important. Um, you know, the price can change, you know, depending on who's responsible for what and you know how much terms on the lease and. You know, even little things like, you know, if the if the increases are two percent versus three percent, uh, you know, that that that's th those little details are, are important, um, especially in the market we're in now you know, with inflation and things like that. Um, we also consult our client on what's called a blend and extend. Uh, so this is, you know, keep going back to short term leases. Uh, if there's a couple years remaining on the lease and then there's a five year option behind that. A lot of times it makes tons of sense for the seller to to offer a rent concession in order to get that option extended and then we can compress the cap rate and get a higher sale. So a lot of times sellers are completely unaware, you know, that they can do that. And they're saying, Well, I'm not gonna give them a rent concession because you know I'm gonna lose money. But then when you do the math and you give them the rent concession and you get the five year option, you know, the property's worth significantly more. Mm. Um, so yeah, so we walked them through that process, but um, you know, ultimately, I think being as honest as possible with the client and you know, setting legitimate expectations um, has, has gone a long way. Um, you know, just trying to keep the best interest in mind of the client. And, you know, if you tell the client you're going to sell sell their building for X, you know, it's your best, it's your job to go out and and, and do the do the best uh, you know of your ability to do that and 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 really make the pro process as easy as possible for them. Yeah, that's great. When I talk to friends who work on the sales side, they always tell me that it's kind of a long game 
uh, it takes a little while to build up momentum, but once you do um, and you get in the groove, uh, it's it's a little bit easier to maintain and, and you get comfortable and you catch your stride. Is that an experience that you had? Were there any particular moments where you felt like as you were building your career in this part of the industry that um, you really got comfortable and things just started to kind of fall into place and you, you fell into a rhythm? Yeah, so that uh, your 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 friend is a very very wise person. Um, this uh, the the you know commercial real estate brokerage is definitely a long play. Um, I'll give you kind of example. Um, you know, I don't I don't have like any crazy transformative moments in my career, but you know some of the most rewarding moments have been working on deals with clients um, over the course of an extended period of time. Um, so. Uh, you kind of learn that stuff doesn't happen overnight. You know, typically every once in a while, something will happen quickly, but the vast majority of, of projects you work on will, will, will be a long play. Uh, so I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I sold a $10 million, um, eight tenant medical office building in Menor, Ohio. Uh, that was um, the anchor tenant was university health system. And I, I proposed on that deal seven years ago, or seven years earlier. Uh, so that was nine years ago total. Uh, when I originally did the proposal, I was two years in the business, had no idea what I was doing really. You know, I mean, I kind of knew what I was doing, but I was, you know, really inexperienced. Um, it was a group of eight doctors, and we did the proposal at a little Mexican restaurant across the street from the building. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing this proposal, you know, this big proposal in front of eight doctors, and I'm really nervous. Uh, you know, we get through the proposal, and then they ultimately say they're not ready to sell. Okay, so um, the deal was priced at $8 million back then. Uh, so I stayed in front of the group um, over the next seven years, sending them emails, making calls. Um, and then, you know, eventually they asked me to come and represent to them again. And... Um, the cap rate shifted so much over seven years that the property was worth $2 million more. Oh, wow. Is, and, um, you know, I represented and then after the meeting, they're like, we'll call you in 30 minutes. And, uh, I was like, all right. So I go back to that Mexican restaurant where I originally proposed on it seven years earlier, you know, hung out there, had a beer or whatever. And then they called me 30 minutes later and said, Hey, congrats. You got the deal. And then, uh, ultimately sold the deal for almost list price, um, you know, in like a three month sale. And it was pretty good feeling and just kind of, you know, really reinforced the idea of like your buddy said, you know, just keep this as like a, you know, a long type play, you know, stay in front of the client, do what's right for the client, you know, and then eventually, you know, good things will happen. So. Yeah. Well, that's great. And that's a, a great anecdote. Seven years. Wow. That's, that is a, a very long play. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything in particular now, you know, going to the future, the next one to three years that you're excited about or you're focusing on, or there's still, you know, a lot of uncertainty out there. Is there anything that you're trying to prepare to do to, to navigate that? Um, yeah, I, I think um, just continuing to, to, you know, do now just staying in front of many people as possible. Um, you know, I remember when I started in 2012, you know, you would hear the guys talking about, you know, navigating through that 2007, 2008 period. And, you know, guys would say, you know, we were just doing as many proposals as possible. We weren't making any money. 
we were just doing the proposals and, you know, following up with people. And I think, you know, we're kind of in a, you know, not the same market, but, you know, a similar type of thing to where, you know, just, just do the work, get in front of people. Um, you know, currently it's me and I have a partner who just got out of college, a junior partner, uh, Billy Scoach. Uh, he's been working with me for two years now. And, um, I spend a ton of time with him mentoring and coaching. Um, it's been probably one of the funnest parts of my career. I've had a lot of fun doing that the last couple of years. Um, so I kind of like the mentoring role. So I guess kind of moving into the next three years, um, you know, I'd like to you know, potentially add on, you know, one or two people onto the team and, you know, mentoring kind of allows me to stay sharp and, pass the things on I've learned and, you know, the mistakes I've made and, you know, kind of just, you know, helps the kind of new generation kind of move in. So that's yeah. the plan. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Chris, it was great having you on the show. The insights you shared were really interesting and I can see why you've been so successful in your career in real estate. Looking forward to seeing how the next two years play out and would love to have you back on again. Keith, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, we'll talk soon.